0: Let's turn to the scriptures and see what we can learn from Psalm 27. It's a rather long psalm. I won't read it all to you, but we will refer to it as we try to understand it. Notice the ringing declaration of the psalmist. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, They will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Verse 13. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. Grace Isaacs had it all. Beautiful, talented, intelligent, senior student of Homerton College in Cambridge, dating the big man on campus, David Shepherd, famous internationally as a cricketer, renowned athlete. He shocked the sporting community in Britain when he announced that he was turning away from his athletic career in order to go into the Anglican ministry and to commit himself to a ministry in one of the poorer neighborhoods of London. He married Grace and off they went on their honeymoon to live happily ever after. Italy they went to. Shortly after they arrived, Grace contracted a very severe case of chickenpox. She had to be isolated in the hospital, and David eventually had to go back to England. They would not allow her to return to England, so she was put in isolation ward. She couldn't speak Italian. They couldn't speak English. And she found herself totally isolated. Nobody knew how deeply this traumatic experience had affected her until shortly after returning to England, she began to suffer agoraphobia, She found it totally impossible for her to meet people. She became basically a recluse. After a considerable amount of help and treatment, she recounts how on one occasion she dared to open the front door and sweep the steps, but that the emotional drain was so much that she had to go back inside. She just couldn't cope. After a considerable amount of time and help, she was able to write a book about her experiences, a rather brave thing to do. By this time, she and her husband were extremely well known. He as the Bishop of Liverpool, she as his wife, of course. In her book, Grace Shepherd wrote this, fear is not only a human response that we all share as human beings, but an essential one that needs recognizing, accepting, and managing. Effectively managed, fear ceases to control our actions. Unacknowledged, Fear takes control, and we find ourselves caught up in varying degrees of destructive behavior. Notice, if you will, the three key words that she uses there concerning fear. It needs to be recognized, accepted, and managed. Her thesis is this, that if we do not recognize, accept, and manage fear, it will manage us. And if fear begins to manage us, it can lead us to varying degrees of destructive behavior. I'm simply going to take Grace's three points and talk to you, first of all, about the heart that fears, and we need to recognize the fearful heart. We need to accept the fearful heart, but we must learn how to manage the fearful heart. Let's recognize the fact that all of us, in varying degrees, experience fear, There are natural causes for fear. We could go through terrifying experiences and they will have a profound impact upon us. We're all familiar with the fallout of people who went through the horrors of war. I think many of us have been shocked to discover that the men who went through the Second World War years later in many instances are still traumatized by the things that they experienced on the beaches of Normandy. Clearly psychological causes of fear, memories of traumatic experiences of childhood can affect us way into adulthood. I remember once when I was running with Judy, my daughter, we saw a lady who signaled us to stop. She wanted to ask us something We did. We were talking to her just very briefly. We didn't notice her dog. Her dog came up and took exception to us talking to the lady and bit Judy on the rear end. As a result of that, she has an inordinate fear of dogs when she's running. And I have run hundreds of extra miles simply to avoid the dogs that she refused to pass. It's a silly little thing, but it profoundly affected her. But there are also spiritual causes, Spiritual causes of fear, there are some people who are not sure if they want to believe it, but deep down they do believe it that there is a God to whom they are ultimately accountable and When they think of the life that they have lived, when they think of the things that they have done, when they think of actually having to stand before God and give an account for the life that they live, there is an inordinate fear of eternity, which leads to an inordinate fear of dying, which is related to an inordinate fear of illness. And this clouds their thinking. There are deep-rooted spiritual and psychological and natural causes for fear. And what we've got to come to terms with is fear exists. Are you facing up to, are you recognizing the fears in your life? It's one thing to recognize them. It's another thing to accept the fear. Accept, first of all, that fear can have beneficial aspects. Paul Tournier, the great Swiss minister psychologist, in his book Reflections quotes someone called Dubois. I have no idea who Dubois was, but he has an interesting quote. He says, Fear within certain limits is an eminently useful emotion. It is eminently useful because it serves as a means of protection. There's no question about it that many young mothers today are very fearful of their children being kidnapped. And as a result of that, they exercise tremendous care whenever they have their children out in public. There's no question about it that fear can generate tremendous motivation in lives. It's amazing how many good things are done simply because people are motivated by fear. Somehow or other, the blood starts pumping and the adrenaline starts pumping, and we discover ourselves capable of doing things that we never for a fraction of a moment thought we would ever be able to do. I remember when we were boys living up in the northwest of England, the small town where we grew up was famous for its iron ore. But eventually the iron ore mines expired and they became derelict. Uh, It was a rather dangerous area because there were all kinds of pits and we weren't allowed to go under this area as boys because the pits were overgrown with brambles. But in the autumn, in the fall, there were magnificent crops of blackberries. Augustine tells the story of how when he was a boy, he stole pears. I never stole pears, just blackberries. We used to go as boys, and we were going to the areas we weren't supposed to go, which was an extremely dangerous thing to do, and we would pick pounds and pounds and pounds of blackberries. But on one occasion, Mr. Redhead, the gamekeeper, saw us, and he surprised us, and he began to chase us. Have you ever tried to run along rusty old railroad tracks through disused iron ore mines. It's a bit precarious. This old man yelling and shouting was coming after us, but my younger brother, four years younger than me, did the most remarkable thing. He absolutely flew past us as if we were going backwards. There was no way he could run like that, but fear will produce the adrenaline and will highly motivate and will have beneficial effects. We escaped the gamekeeper. Uh, But fear unmanaged will produce all kinds of debilitating things as well. How many people live with great fear in their lives because of the uncertainty of the future? How many children go to bed at night fearful that their parents are going to divorce? How many go to bed at night and wake up in the morning worrying that they'll have a job? How many people, when they think of the future, wonder what is going to happen as far as health care is concerned? Are they going to be able to afford to get sick? And certainty concerning the future can be so debilitating for some people that it almost paralyzes them. And as a result, they look for all kinds of security. Sometimes so great is the uncertainty, so deep-rooted is the fear, that we look for security in situations and persons and relationships that in actual fact are going to exacerbate the problem, as Grace Shepherd tells us. That if fear is not managed properly, it can lead us into destructive behaviors. How many people confronting the uncertainty of the future have found that the only relief they get is an escapist lifestyles? And not infrequently, the escapist lifestyles that they get into are so utterly detrimental to them that they are beginning to lose their health. You see, the fear isn't being handled. The fear of the uncertainty of the future is actually being exacerbated by the way they're dealing with it. It's not just the future either, it's the past. Some people, thinking of their past, feel desperately culpable. They would hate their wives to know what they've done. Some of them would hate their wives to know what they're doing right at this time. Some people would absolutely hate to think that the IRS would actually catch up on them. Some people have got so much garbage swept under the rugs that they live with an inordinate sense of culpability, and as a result, they don't know how to cope with it, so they live a life of dissembling and lying and cheating and covering up. They are one big cover-up. Because of the dissembling and the lying and the cheating, instead of resolving the fears, they are simply engaging in destructive behavior patterns. But it isn't just uncertainty concerning the future and culpability concerning the past. Many, many people have an overwhelming sense of inadequacy concerning the present. They are in circumstances they just can't handle. And they either find themselves passively drifting into depression Or they find themselves aggressively becoming angry, and if the anger isn't carefully handled, it could degenerate into acts of violence. You know as well as I do all these things that are going on in our culture. Have you ever realized how so many of these things that are happening are directly or indirectly related to fear, not managed properly? Fortunately, the Scriptures have something to tell us on the subject, Let's look into Psalm 27. Notice how the psalmist begins to talk. The Lord is my light and my salvation. There is a theological statement. As a result of that, he asks a practical rhetorical question. Whom shall I fear? Please notice that the practicality of his life is rooted in theological conviction. You hear me say this ad infinitum, ad nauseum. I'm going to go on saying it it is absolutely imperative that we recognize that the practicalities of life must be rooted in sound theological conviction and understanding. As if to press the point home, he then says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. And then the practical rhetorical question, of whom shall I be afraid? He then begins to talk about the immediate circumstances of his life, but then he comes out with this great statement in verse 3, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Notice, first of all, the way the psalmist manages his fearful heart. He does it by making sure that he has the correct perspective. He starts with the Lord. The Lord is my light. Look at it this way. The Lord is the one who shines light into the dark uncertain areas of life. He shines the light of his truth into the darkness of my confusion. He shines the light of his truth into the dark uncertainties of my future. And I begin to discover something. I begin to discover that the fear I'm experiencing because of uncertainty of the future begins to dissipate as the Lord becomes my light and shines the light of truth on the future that is uncertainty. So I begin to say at the risk of giving way to a cliche, I don't know what the future holds. I do know the one who holds my future. The emphasis, the perspective, The focus is on the Lord who is my light. The Lord is my salvation. This can be interpreted in many, many different ways, applied in many different ways, for there are so many things from which we need to be saved. We need to be saved from our past. We need to be saved from the consequences of the things we did in the past. We need to be saved from the consequences of the things that we should have done in the past and didn't do. But who can deal with his past? All my past has gone into the eternity before the eternal eyes of an eternal God. As far as I'm concerned, it is past. As far as he's concerned, it is eternally present. If anything is to be done about my past, I cannot do it, only God can. And here's the glorious news. The Lord is my light and shines light into the darkness of the uncertainty of my future, and the Lord is my salvation, who incredibly graciously is prepared to forgive. And he takes away the fear that comes from culpability concerning the past. But the problem is between my past and my future, I live in the present. But hear this, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. The day-to-day experiences, as the psalmist says in Psalm 23, all the days of my life, the Lord is a stronghold. He is the one to whom we can resort. He is the one in whom we can trust. He is the one who is bigger than the things that cause the dart of fear to spring deep into my heart. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of knowing the Lord. May I respectfully ask you a question? As you recognize and accept the fears in your life, As you see the way in which some of these fears can have a positive impact, but then notice how the fears can become debilitating. To whom do you relate your fears? Or to what do you relate your fears? Is it to a Lord whom you know well as light and salvation and stronghold of your life? This clearly is the situation of the psalmist. And he's able to translate and apply his understanding of the Lord to his specific areas of fear-inducing circumstances. But notice something else. He goes on to talk about the one thing that he asks of the Lord. And here it's a matter of priority. One thing I ask of the Lord You've always heard the story of the men who find the magic lantern and rub it and the genie comes and gives them one wish. One thing you could ask. Let me suggest something else. That the Lord comes to you, taps you on the shoulder at a moment of deep devotion and meditation and says, ask me one thing. Just ask me one thing. I wonder what it would be. The psalmist says, Lord, if you tap me on the shoulder and ask me one thing, I'll tell you immediately what it is. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. You say, how impractical? Uh Uh-uh, no, 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 no. You see, it is only as he focuses on who the Lord is that he can begin to be practically capable of living in a fear-inducing situation. One thing I ask of the Lord. This is my priority. One thing I ask of the Lord. One thing I ask and will seek after. Notice he asks and he seeks. Someone very close to me, who should be nameless, loses keys (laughs) regularly. This person who is very close to me and loses keys regularly is deeply spiritual. And whenever this nameless person loses keys, this person prays about it. I have never made any claims to be anywhere near as spiritual as this person. I look for them. (laughs) This person asks, I seek. We've been quite a formidable team, lo, these many years. Usually, as I seek for them, I go about it the way I was trained to as a bank examiner who was always looking for money that happened to get mixed up between the bank and the teller's pockets, and we always found that we could trace it. And if you go about it logically, and you seek carefully, and you leave no stone unturned, guess what? You find it, and this is what I do. But this colleague of mine, who should be nameless, when I eventually find the keys, praises God, says, what an answer to prayer. Well, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to ask or are we supposed to seek? And the answer is yes. Yes. Now, there are some deeply spiritual people who are not particularly practical. And there are some essentially practical people who could never be confused with being spiritual. But look what the psalmist says here. The priority, as far as I'm concerned, in dealing with all the fear-inducing aspects of life is that I absolutely, imperatively, must focus on who the Lord is. He's my only hope, and I need to get to know Him better. And I'm going to ask the Lord, oh Lord, make it possible for me to get to know you better, and then I'm practically going to go about taking the steps necessary to do it. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. It's very interesting to notice what he really wants. Remember that this is a soldier. Theologians tell us that in all probability this psalm was written uh, around about the time he was going to go off to war again. A fear-inducing situation if ever there was one. And what he's saying is, if there's one thing I could really do, if I would really have my druthers, if there's one thing I could ask of the Lord, it would be that I wouldn't have to go and fight the Lord's enemies anymore, and I could quit being a soldier and go in the ministry and just sit around the temple all day long. That's what I'd really like to do. But of course, that is not what he's going to be allowed to do. And so in a practical sense, that is what he's talking about. But in a spiritual sense... What he's really saying is, in my circumstances, I understand the one priority must be this, that I'm going to ask the Lord and take the practical steps to see the prayer answered. I'm going to ask that I might deepen in my knowledge of him, that I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. And when I do that, guess what? In the day of trouble, he will keep me safe day of trouble comes but for many many people when the day of trouble comes they didn't get the perspectives right and they didn't get the priority right and trouble overwhelms them and they begin to scramble for answers the fear is never dealt with and guess what they get themselves into self-destructive behaviors and relationships I'm fascinated with the the idea of him wanting to go into the temple that he might gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Let's be practical for a minute. If he'd gone to the temple, what would he have seen? Well, actually, he couldn't have gone to the temple because he wasn't allowed to build it. His son Solomon built it. But the tabernacle, what would he have seen? Well, he'd have gone and and he'd have been told that there was a Holy of Holies where God dwelt, But he wasn't allowed to go in there because there was a great big impenetrable veil. And even if he had gone in there, it was pitch dark. So how in the world could he see the beauty of the Lord there? Well, he was allowed to go outside, but if he'd gone outside, what would he have seen? He'd have seen a lot of priests bustling around and a lot of farmers bringing sheep and goats and bulls and them being slaughtered. And you say he he wanted to go to the temple into an area that he wasn't allowed to go where there was nothing but pitch blackness anyway. Anyway. And where he could see what was going on, it was just a lot of animals being slaughtered. And he calls that seeing the beauty of the Lord. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, we have the New Testament to make sense out of this. The beauty of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord, is seen, first of all, in the fact that he is holiest of holy, that he is utterly separate that mere man cannot in and of himself move into his presence, that there is a great veil separating him from us, that he is so holy and so pure and so separate from our sin that we would shrivel in his presence. There is an impenetrableness about God. He transcends all things. He is high and holy and awesome. I believe that one of the great needs in our contemporary culture is for people to see the beauty of the awesomeness and the holiness and the separateness and the otherness and the omniscience and the omnipotence of God, the attributes of God in all his transcendent sovereign majesty. You know why? Because when your fears overwhelm you, what you need is an awesome, holy, sovereign, majestic, omnipotent God. You don't need a buddy you need God. But there's the other side to what he would have seen. For if he'd only seen that there was a place where God dwelt that was impenetrable Where he lived in deep darkness and he was separate from sinners, how awe-inspiring it would have been, but how discouraging it would have been. But then he would have looked at the sacrificial system and he would have heard the words that had come of old from God that through the shedding of blood there is remission of sin. The sacrificial system was pointing to the sacrifice par excellence where God in Christ bears our sins in his own body on the cross, that he dies for our sins, and we look on the beauty of our God, and what do we see? On the one hand, his holy, magnificent, awe-inspiring, sovereign, omnipotent majesty. On the other hand, his incredible grace. His majestic mercy is reaching out to us we have no rights to enter into his presence. We have only the opportunity of coming humbly before him and casting our puniness on his omnipotence, our weakness on his strength, our sinfulness on his grace, our failure on his mercy, and trusting him. Oh, that I might... Move into a relationship with the Lord where I may gaze upon his beauty. Where I may seek him. Where I may understand him in all his attributes. And then translate who he is into my situation. And then in the day of trouble. I will not fear. The psalmist then goes on to point out something else. It's a matter of persuasion. I don't have time to get into verses 7 through 13. You can do this on your own, but notice verse 13. I am still confident of this, he says. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Notice the persuasion here. Notice the confidence here. Notice the way that he marches off into battle, fear-inducing situations to the left of him and to the right of him, before him and behind him. In this, however, he says, I will be confident. Why? Because he has rolled the burden upon an omnipotent, gracious, merciful God who not only has become his light and his salvation but is also the stronghold Of his life. Whom shall I fear? is the natural response. But it becomes a matter of practice as well. Verse 14, wait for the Lord, he says. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. To wait for the Lord, in very practical terms, means be patient. He moves at his own speed, not yours. I am desperately impatient. He inhabits eternity. Have you got that? I am desperately impatient. He inhabits eternity. Wait for the Lord means be patient, but wait for the Lord also means be expectant. You go on a date. I'll meet you at a certain place at a certain time. She is late. You're patient, but you're also expectant. You look for the moment when she'll step off the bus or get out of her car or come around the corner and there she is. It was worth the wait. It was worth being patient and the expectancy has paid off. Wait on the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And then he says, in case you didn't hear it the first time, wait, I say, on the Lord. Let me ask you something. What do you fear most? Are you managing it, or is it managing you? Is that which you fear most lesser or bigger than your God? How well do you know him? How much do you fear it? Do you know how to bring it to him and to be able to say the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is the strength of my life of whom shall I be afraid the apostle Paul puts it rather differently but very powerfully who shall separate us from the love of Christ Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He's not dreaming up the weirdest things here. He's simply cataloging the things he goes through on a regular basis. No, he says. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. How in the world can you say that? But he goes on. For I am convinced... That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle John adds these trenchant words. Perfect love casts out fear. And whence comes the perfect love? From this God we know, who in Christ has given himself for our redemption, so that we can say as we are committed to him, he is my light, he is my salvation, he is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I fear? Though an enemy encamp against me, I will not fear. In Psalm 56 When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Jesus put it this way Don't fear men who can only kill the body, fear him who can do that and cast the soul into hell, too. Make sure that you can fear him and then you have nothing else to fear. Let's pray together. Father, look upon us, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of us, all with our own special fears, our own anxieties, our own worries. Some because we recognize that life is beyond our control. Others because of things that we've done that were very much in our control. Some of us fearful of what people will do. Others fearful of what circumstances will do. Some of us even afraid of what you would do. Lord, if this fear isn't managed, it will manage us and lead us into all manner of destructive behaviors the anger, the dissembling, the cheating, the lying, the violence. Lord, you know what's going on in our hearts. You know what's going on in our homes. You know how much of it is the direct or indirect result of unmanaged fear. Would you help us to acknowledge the fear? Would you help us to recognize it? Would you help us to Relate it to who you are. And if our grasp on you is tenuous at best, if our knowledge of you is limited at best, would you, by your gracious Holy Spirit, spark within us a desire to know you, to honor you, to trust you, and to discover you in all your fullness, in our lives and help each one of us to go away saying the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid deal with our fearful hearts we pray amen